Amen, amen. It's great to see you all back after Easter. It's great to be in the house of the Lord. What a good time of worship this morning. Hasn't it been a wonderful morning, worshiping the Lord this morning? Y'all excited to be here? Anybody? I'm excited to be here. I'm, I'm excited to be preaching to you today. And you know, when you go through seminary and um, you know, you're mentored by other pastors, they don't really tell you about the times when you're going to walk through a unique text like today. And you don't really prepare your heart. You don't, you don't um, dream about the day when God gives you an opportunity to be at your own church and to be a pastor of a church. You don't think about the fact that one day you'll stay in front of your congregation and you're going to preach about the judgment of God. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, if that weren't enough, God, I guess, is teaching me to walk by faith. So, the way that I preach is I uh, pray and prepare and, and study the Word, and then, and then we have plans. I, I develop plans to preach the Word and go through books of the Bible months before we actually get to the text that I'm going to preach from, like, for instance, today and tonight. Way back in January, uh, when, uh, well, actually in December, when I prayed about what we would do in 2021, God you know, brought the book of Acts to my heart and the book of Genesis. And somehow... By God's sovereignty and uh, His providence, today I'm preaching on Acts 5, 1 through 11, which is God's judgment on Ananias and Sapphira. And then tonight I'm preaching on God's judgment in the flood of the entire earth. Both of those happen to be on the same Sunday. Uh, didn't plan that to happen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and, and say that God planned for that to happen. So, Today is Sunday. It's the day of judgment. So I hope that you're happy you're here. And I'm, I'm excited to preach on this. And the reason I'm excited to preach about God's judgment is because within the judgment of God, we see the grace of God. Right? So when God issues His judgment, inside of His judgment, we see His abundant, abundant grace. And so I hope that you'll see that this morning. God takes our sin and holiness very, very seriously. It's very important to Him because of His nature, because of who He is. How do I know that God cares about your holiness and my holiness? Well, there's a, a symbol of that right behind me, that cross. God cares so much about you and your righteousness that He sent His only Son to die on a cross. You see, when Jesus hung on that cross, He received the wrath of God for your sin and my sin. So our holiness and our righteousness must mean something to God. If He were to go to such great lengths to offer us the opportunity to be made righteous and to be restored to a right relationship with Him, the truth of the matter is, church, that God will not be mocked or duped or hustled. He is an omnipotent God. He is all-powerful. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He is in all places at all times. No scheme of man, no scheme of the enemy Satan or any of his angels will ever confuse, confound, or catch God off guard. 
We also see in this particular text today that God grows His church through judgment. And that's what we're going to talk about. However, during this season of God's grace, we, we are in a season of His grace, if you didn't know that. This season of humanity after Jesus is gone, died on the cross, buried in the ground. We celebrated last week. He resurrected from the dead. Jesus said we're, we're in a season of God's grace and mercy. The, the doors in heaven are wide open and all who would repent and trust in Jesus are welcome to come and receive salvation and a home in heaven. During this season of grace, humanity has oftentimes mistaken God's mercy for weakness and taken advantage of His patience while polluting His creation with our sin. From time to time, God displays His judgment in the New Testament. And that's one instance that we're going to study this morning. The text we will consider today describes one of the instances in which the Lord swiftly judges sin in His church. This will serve as a testimony to both believers and non-believers about the power of God and the seriousness of our sin. Let's look first at verse 1 of Acts chapter 5. The words will be on the screen. Open your Bibles if you have them or turn them on in your phone. We're going to talk about the sin of omission of Ananias. So Acts chapter 5 verse 1, it says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he had this couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and they're kind of caught up in the excitement of the moment. Just before chapter 5, at the end of chapter 4, a man named Barnabas had gotten excited, and his nickname, his nickname Barnabas, uh, which means uh, uh, son of encouragement. So he's encouraged, he's encouraging other people. At this time in the life of the church, people are bringing their, their uh, resources, they're helping each other out. The church, it says, is unified under the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. People are excited. Thousands of people are being saved, and the church is growing. They're standing up against persecution. Things are going really, really well. So Ananias is caught up in the excitement of this moment. And so like Barnabas who we read about in the end of uh, chapter 4, they sell some land and they bring it to the church. Now imagine the excitement in those days as people gave freely to the church, as thousands upon thousands of people are being saved. The city of Jerusalem is filling with believers. God's doing miraculous things through the ministry of the apostles. People who can't walk are able to walk. People who can't see are able to see. Imagine being a part of that movement. It's almost impossible to believe. And yet God did it. The Lord was pouring out His grace upon the church. And tremendous things are happening. So instead of selling the property and giving all the proceeds to the church like Barnabas had done and others, verse 2 tells us that Ananias kept back some of the money. Now the, the Greek word for that, that phrase, kept back, it's important for us to take a moment and investigate that. It insinuates by keeping back that part of the proceeds that he actually embezzled some of the money. What that tells us 
is that it was clear to Ananias that he was supposed to sell his lands and give the proceeds to the church. That's what God called him to do through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The fact that he, the, the, the phrase there that Luke chose, that phrase kept back, it tells us something more than just that he kept some of it. It tells us that he knew that he was supposed to give it to the church. Instead of giving it to the church, he kept some of it for himself. He embezzled it from God and from his church. The same Greek word is used in the Old Testament book of Joshua chapter 7. So there's an, a, a, a translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. It's written, written in Greek. So they took the original Hebrew, they translated it in Greek. In fact, during Jesus' time, most people read the Old Testament in that Greek. They read the Septuagint. And so think back to Joshua chapter 7. The Israelites are going to take Jericho, right? They march around the wall, the wall falls down, they run in, God gives them one command. Everything inside of that place is supposed to be holy unto the Lord. You're not supposed to take any of that treasure home. None of that loot belongs to you, it all belongs to me. That's what God told them. There's one man named Achan. Remember him? He decided that he would keep back some of what he got in Jericho for himself. The same phrase, kept back, the same Greek word is used to describe what Achan did and what Ananias does here. He kept what was not his. And of course, we know what happened to him. God judged him immediately and his family. So the author uses identical wording as well, describing what Ananias and Sapphira did, as well as what uh, Barnabas did in Acts 4.37. Both of them, the phrase says, that they laid it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas sells his land, takes what he has, that, that amount of money, and he takes it to the apostles in the church, he lays it at their feet as an act of worship of God. And that is used to care for the needs of the Jerusalem church. Ananias does the same thing. Sells his property, takes the money from the property, takes the money, takes some of it back aside, and then he lays it at the apostles' feet. Now, what's insinuated here is that the church believes that he sold his land and took the money like Barnabas did and gave all of it for the use of the church. He probably, perhaps, even enjoyed accolades and celebration of God's grace and mercy for him doing that. He was deceiving God and deceiving his brothers and sisters in Christ. So you might be asking, what, what exactly did Ananias do wrong? I mean, it's pretty spectacular that he would take something of his, sell it, and give any portion of that to the church, right? I mean, the fact that Ananias gave some of his money to the church is more than many American Christians do all year long. The fact that Ananias kept some of his proceeds from the sale of the land for himself was wrong because he was supposed to give it to the church, it could have been the Holy Spirit that commanded him to do so, or it could have been because he led the church to believe that he was doing what Barnabas did. Whatever the circumstances were that caused him to sell the land and give the proceeds to the church, what we know is that he betrayed God and the Holy Spirit by keeping or embezzling some of that money. Now, the application of this part of the text stings. I'm not going to lie. It stings a lot. I'm going to ask you a hard question. One that I think will probably penetrate into your heart, but I think that's what God's Word is supposed to do for us. Are you embezzling 
anything from God? Are you embezzling anything from God? When we think about that word, we think, well, no, I don't like come into the church and like take money out of the offering plate. That's what we think about embezzling, right? Or, no, I don't come and steal things from the church. What I'm asking you, which is what Ananias did, are there things that you know that you have that belong to God, that you know belong to God, that you're holding back? Let me give you an example from my own life. I've used this example before because it is a very poignant, clear way to illustrate embezzling from the Lord. When Darlene and I were uh, much younger and I had much more hair and it wasn't as gray, um, we bought this really sweet truck. Anybody in here ever have, had or have a sweet truck right now, like a really awesome truck? It's okay. to It's good. I like, I like trucks. I had a sweet truck. It was a 2003 Dodge Ram four-wheel drive, off-road edition, single cab with a V8 Hemi, right? Awesome, right? It was awesome. I could turn those tires like nothing. You know, it was, it was a spectacular truck. It was fast. It could pull anything I wanted to. I could take it in the snow, the mud, the dirt, the sand, the beach, wherever I wanted to go. I had off-road tires on it. It was amazing. And it was a pristine truck. I could count the scratches on that truck. Right? I could count them. So we bought this truck and me and Darlene talked about it and really molded over and we're like, well, it's kind of, you know, a nice truck. Should we spend this kind of money on a truck? And I said, yeah, we're going to buy this truck, but you know what? We're dedicating this truck to the Lord. This truck belongs to the Lord. So we're going to use it for ministry, for our church planting. We're going to help people move with it. All that kind of stuff, right? We gave it to the Lord, just like Ananias. Well, you know what the Lord did when I said that? He took me up on the offer of the act of worship. Along came a guy in our church, wanted to borrow my truck. I thought, that's an interesting thing for someone to ask me randomly to borrow my truck. And I thought, oh man, borrow my truck? What, what are you going to do with it? He's like, i got to move some stuff. I'm like, all right. Well, I guess that'll work. So I gassed it all up and got it ready, and I was ready to give my offering to the Lord. Well, I took my truck, used it to haul stuff, including a big load of mulch and dirt. And the truck came back. It was all dirty. It didn't have any gas. You know, it was just the truck was used the way it was the truck supposed to be used. It didn't really have the sparkle that it had before it left. And I remember getting it back. I was just whining to Darlene, look at the truck. Who does this to another man's truck? I mean, surely he noticed that it was full of gas when he got it. Surely he noticed that the bed was clean when he got it, and there was no mud on the outside of the truck. Surely he noticed all those things. And with like a, uh, the precision of a brain surgeon, you know what my wife said? How dare she? You know what she said to me? I thought it was the Lord's truck. I thought that this was a truck dedicated to the Lord. I thought we bought this truck to do those things. And my answer in the true spirit of Ananias was, well, we did, but how, why would someone do that? I thought this was the Lord's truck. I thought this was a ministry. You know, when you loan things out on ministry, they don't come back the way you sent them out. That's why it's called a ministry. 
man, that was like, that was like a knife right into my heart. And I learned a valuable lesson on that day. The stuff that I think is mine really isn't mine and really all of it belongs to the Lord. And when I feel convicted by the Lord to give something to Him, you better give it to Him. Right? Because it belongs to Him. Now, let me take some of that conviction that was in my heart and just like pour it out for you to feast upon. Are you embezzling anything from God? We can embezzle all kinds of things from Him. Like your time, your talents, your spiritual gifts, your money, your resources. We're really God's stewards, right? We're fools if we think that the things that we own are things that we really own because the Bible says that everything we have is given to us by God, right? It's given to us on loan to be used for Him and for His glory. Now we're supposed to use those things wisely, of course. But I think as we read this text that many of you in this room are going to have things that are going to pop up into your mind. Don't, don't dismiss those things. If there are things that come up in your heart and you feel like God's calling you, like telling you, like, hey, I want you know, more of your time for the ministry. Or I, I think you have some things that you can give to the church for my glory. Whatever that is, it's really between you and the Lord. But what are those things? So if you don't hear anything else I say today, hear this. When we hold back and embezzle from the Lord, we are in sin. And sin is serious. And it has serious, life-altering, eternal consequences. Now let's see what happens to Ananias. Old Ananias... He is now going to receive God's judgment for his sin. Look at verse 3. Ananias, Peter asked. So let me just reframe uh, this or, or bring it up to speed. So Ananias sells his land, right? His wife's fire knows about it. Ananias comes to church. Everybody's celebrating. They're worshiping God. Things are awesome. Things are going really well. He takes some of his money, puts it away for himself, takes another portion, leads everyone to believe that he's giving everything to the Lord. He lays at everyone's feet. They're in worship service. Everybody's celebrating. It's awesome, right? So that's what Ananias is doing. So then Peter is one of the apostles st standing here wherever they were worshiping. Ananias lays this at the, his feet as an act of worshiping God, giving it over to the apostles to use for the ministry of the church. So Peter's there, one of the apostles of Christ. Verse 3, Ananias, Peter said, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you plan this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. Ananias obviously underestimated the great spiritual movement that's taking place at this moment. Remember, people are being saved. Miraculous things are happening. Blind people are, are able to see. Uh, people who are unable to walk are able to walk. God is at work doing amazing things. Ananias thinks that he could get away with his little ruse and the church would be none the wiser. He certainly did not remember Jeremiah 17.10, which says, I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. God assumes that everyone will see what he's doing and not know the truth. Instead, however, through the Holy Spirit, 
God gives Peter a very special type of discernment. Peter confronts him. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? In the days leading up to this event, Luke reports that the church is of one heart and one soul. This is the first recorded sin in the church. Right here. That means as they moved up into this time within the church, there's no division, there's no derision, there's no delusions of grandeur as everyone sacrificed to one another and for one another to meet the needs of Jesus' great commission. They really were on mission for God. Ananias allowed Satan to plant a seed, a tiny seed of self-gratification in his heart. And he commits to embezzle this money from God. Before this unfortunate chain of events began, the land and the proceeds from selling the land belonged to Ananias. That's what Peter brings up. He said, this was your land. You could do with this land as you please. But remember that we're all really stewards of our possessions. They don't belong to us. They belong to God. God is the real owner of everything in this world. He blesses us with certain possessions and resources and gifts and talents and all those things. At some point, however, Ananias publicly pledges or is convicted by the Holy Spirit to give everything that he received for selling that land. And so at that point, when either he told the church, I'm giving you the proceeds for my land, or when the Holy Spirit said, you're supposed to sell your land and give it to the church, at, at that point, that land doesn't belong to him any longer. At that, that point, it belongs to the Lord. So to keep any of it for himself would be embezzling. Ananias' lie wasn't really the biggest and most harmful action that took place in this moment. The bigger and more devastating deception was the idea that Satan planted and Ananias accepted, which was the belief that no one will know what you did. You could keep some of that money behind. No one's going to know. It reminds me, of when I was a child and I cut my own hair. Anybody in here cut your own hair as a kid? Kids, don't cut your own hair, okay? Don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't go home and cut your own hair. Talk to mommy and daddy about that. I made the mistake of cutting my own hair. Some of y'all did that, right? Do you remember when you did that and then you got in trouble? I remember it like it was yesterday. I wanted to cut my hair. I asked my mom about cutting my hair. She said, you don't need a haircut. I'm, I'm getting a haircut today. Whether you take me in or I do it myself. I didn't say that, of course. And I'm a quick way to get some soap in the mouth in my house. So I decide I'm going to cut my own hair. So I take some scissors. Mom's not around. And, you know, I don't cut the hair back here, maybe where she wouldn't notice. You know where I cut it? Right in the front, right up here, Miss Alice. Boom, right across. Not even like a good solid. It was like this. And so I cut it. And I had my little trophy. And I remember... After I cut that hair, thinking, oh no, I got a chunk of hair in my hands. What am I going to do with this hair? So I did what any good son would do. I hid it behind the fridge. <laughs> we had one of those, those olive-colored refrigerators, and I knew there was lots of hair. We had cats, so there's hair behind the fridge all the time. So 
my hair would just blend in, so I'd just take the hair, pop it behind the fridge. No one will know. Nobody's going to know. I got to do what I wanted to do. I got away with it. No one's going to know until about two seconds after mom walked in the room, right? What do you think she did, moms? What happened to your hair? What do you mean? She's like, did you cut your hair? Oh, man, I felt real guilty. And yes, I cut my hair. Where is it? So not only did I have to tell her I did it, she made me go retrieve the hair from the back of the fridge. So I am behind the fridge. I got my hair. She said, I told you not to cut your hair. You know, we went through the whole thing. I was punished, all that stuff. You know where that hair is today? It's in my baby book. <laughs> As a reminder to listen to my mom. Well, of course my mom knew because she was my mom, and she knew me well. She knew how long my hair was. She knew everything about me. So when a chunk of hair was missing, she knew I cut my hair. Not, not in addition to the fact that I just talked about cutting my hair for like 20 minutes before I did it, right? Foolish child disobeying my mom, thinking that I was going to get away with it when, of course, she knew. How much more so does our Heavenly Father know us? I mean, He knit us together in our mother's womb. He knows everything about you. He doesn't just see you on the outside like everybody else. He sees you on your inside. He sees your heart. He knows your thoughts and your attitudes. Ananias forgot this or assumed upon God's grace that God wouldn't do anything about it. So Peter confronts Ananias. He said, why would you lie to the Holy Spirit like this? What compelled you to engage in this kind of sin? Verse 5 says, when he heard this word, these words, this is Ananias. Ananias dropped dead, and great fear came upon all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, buried him. Now this text doesn't tell us how Ananias died. Could have been death because of shock or, or guilt or remorse. The fact that a great fear came upon the heart of the church indicates that his death was spiritual in nature. However God decided to do it, God judged Ananias, and Ananias died in that moment because of his lying to the Lord. Now, while burials in Palestine are usually done quite quickly, they're usually not done this quickly. He died, hit the ground, church members came in, wrapped him up, and buried him. And that was it. Man, this is shocking, right? It's overwhelming. It should be. God does this at other times in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty through 32 this is what Paul says. He's writing to the church. They're in sin, open sin, and he's writing to them, trying to compel them to repent. He says, this is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. That means died. He said, you're sick, you're ill, and people are dying. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. What was happening in Corinth at that time is the same thing that happened to Ananias and soon Sapphira here in the New Testament church. They're in open sin against God. God is judging them for their sin. Paul's writing to them, telling them, you got to repent. That's why you're sick. That's why you're dying. To make matters worse now, Ananias' wife, Sapphira, colluded with him in this deception. And before we move into that part of the text, I, I, just, I just feel compelled to say that us living, or living today and reading this text, almost, it's almost unbelievable to us, right? 
because God's been so gracious to us. We have problems with sin, right, as people. We make mistakes. There, there are churches devastated by the sin of the people of the church. And, and God does nothing. But church, take this as a warning. Let's not mistake God's grace for ineptitude or His tolerance of sin for ignoring that sin. There will one day be a judgment for sin. But at the same time, inside of that judgment, listen to me, inside of that judgment, there's God's grace. There's God calling out to us His church through the ministry of His Holy Spirit and the preaching of the Word, calling us to repentance and trust and faith. Calling us through this text on this Sunday morning. That's God telling us, don't hold anything back from me. Those things I've called for you to give to the church, give to the church freely. We have a God who at all times is ready to receive the repentant sinner and to give His forgiveness. We have a gracious God who loves us, who desires the very best for us. Now the trouble with sin, aside from the fact fact that it separates us from our loving God, is that sin has a devastating impact on those we love. Let's look at verse 7. About three hours later, his wife comes in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Sapphira uh, comes to the same place at the feet of Peter where her husband had stood and died three hours earlier. What we often see when we read verses 7 through 10 is God's judgment. We fail to see God's grace. What did she have a chance to do in that moment? Come clean, right? Did you sell this land for such and such a price? She said yes. She could have said no. And I feel terrible about it. This is what we did. You know what she would have received in that moment? Grace. Forgiveness. An opportunity to be restored to God and with her church, but instead she continued to carry on the lie of her husband. Up to this point, God, through the ministry of His Holy Spirit, has been wonderfully gracious to His church. Thousands have been saved and are now following Jesus. He brought unity and grace, miraculous works, respect for the church among the people, Even the non-believers during that time, those who were not following Jesus, knew that something miraculous and powerful was happening among these people at this time. So why did Ananias and Sapphira test the Spirit of the Lord? Why did they push the limits of God's grace and mercy and carry on this act of deception? Why do any of us do that? Why do we presume upon God's grace and mercy? Always assuming that we've got one more day, one more week, one more year, one more second. 
God's grace and mercy is available for us today, right now, in this moment. Pole Hill writes this. He says, One can scarcely miss the irony of the situation. Now she lay at Peter's feet in place of her money. She had joined her husband in conspiracy, and now she would join him in the grave. Sapphira was held accountable for her lying, and she was judged by God for doing that. But I think the lion's share of the blame falls on Ananias, her husband, the leader of the home. He's the one that sold the land that belonged to him. He's the one that compelled his wife to follow him in this lie. What we see in this part of the text is that our sin has devastating impact on those whom we love. Especially church, especially generationally. The way we live our lives impacts our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids in ways that we could never, ever measure. Do you know that? Have y'all ever had, have y'all ever done something that you knew wasn't right and then had your kids parrot that back to you? Or take on some kind of attitude that you had? They're just like sponges, right? They look to us as their parents, as leaders, whether maybe you're a teacher or you lead children in various ways through your work. They, they look to adults as, as, um, as a way to, to teach them as mentors, as models of how they're supposed to live. So they look at you and the way that you behave, the way that you speak, the way you carry yourself, the things you give your time and your money and all that stuff to, they look at that and they, they absorb that into themselves and that's how they're going to live when they get older. Do you know that? We all know that's true. Our sin doesn't just affect us. It, it affects those who come after us. It affects the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that. We're training the next generation how to live. Now, that seems like a difficult message. That seems even horrifying because we make lots of mistakes, right? Do you make mistakes? You make mistakes in front of your kids or in front of young people? It seems like all is lost, but all is not lost, church. All is not lost because we serve a loving, gracious, merciful God who just like Peter standing in front of Sapphira comes to us giving us countless opportunities to repent and receive forgiveness. And we can pass on that attitude of repentance to our kids. We can show them that yes, we make mistakes Yes, I just made a mistake. You know, 10 minutes ago, I just made a mistake. We can go back to them and tell them, this is the mistake I made, and I'm sorry for that. And, you know, God will forgive me for that when I go to him in repentance. That's the God we serve. So while Sapphira refused to repent and tell the truth, you can repent and turn to the Lord and be received by him and receive his forgiveness. Now, God will be glorified in all things. Even in his judgment, he's glorified. Look at verse 11. It says, Then great fear came on the whole church, and all who heard the, these. Then great fear came on the whole church, and all who heard these things. You think they had a problem with people lying after that? 
Woo, I'll tell you what. People that were selling their land, you know, there was not a penny missing after that, I bet, right? I got $1,100 and one cent. You know where that one cent is? Right there at the apostles' feet, I guarantee it. God's judgment upon Ananias and Sapphira did something amazing in that church. Great fear came on the whole church. Not fear that will be struck down and killed, although that is a part of recognizing who God is in his goodness and holiness and righteousness and power, but fear in worshiping God, knowing and recognizing this is our God, our all-powerful, all-knowing amazing God. This is the God who we know. We're, we're called by Him to worship Him and He loves us. That's what type of fear came upon all the people. Now, what is this text really about for us? As I close, what, what does this mean for you and for me? I think James 4.17 sums this up well. He says, so it is sin to know the good and yet, yet not do it. It is sin to know the good and yet not do it. That really lays uh, a significant responsibility upon our hearts, right? We have been given by God to us this amazing gift called the Holy Spirit. When you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you. He lives inside of you. Do you know that? He does a lot of different things. He brings with him these spiritual gifts to be used for the building up of the body of Christ. He also helps us understand the meaning of the Bible. He also convicts us of our sin. And so when within his ministry, what James is saying here is within the ministry of the Holy Spirit, when it comes to your knowledge that God has called you to do something, it's a sin to not do that thing. Now the thing is, is I can't tell you, you need to do this, or you need to do that. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We have the Word of God that teaches us how we're supposed to live. But then in addition to that, we have the Holy Spirit who leads us into making decisions. And James tells us it's a sin to know the good, or to know what God's called you to do, and not to do it. So, during this time of invitation... I want to leave you with this, this, just this last question. What has God called you to do? What is it that during this sermon, God has placed on your heart to do? What, what are you compelled to do right now in this moment? In just a minute, I'm going to ask everyone to stand. And we're going to have a time of invitation. What that means is we're all going to sing a song. And if you want to come down and pray at the altar, you can. Or if you want to come and talk to me, you can. For some of you, you feel this, this drawing from God. That's his Holy Spirit leading you to salvation, to turn from sin and trust in Jesus for the very first time. You need to do that today. For, for others of you, you need to join this church. You need to make this your home. If you're a believer and you do not have a church home, you should be a part of this church home. Others of you, there, there's going to be a calling on your heart to, to give money to this ministry or, or to, to step forward and to lead a ministry or be a part of, of volunteering your time and using your talents and your spiritual gifts. 
I can't tell you what that is for you. That, that's really between you and the Lord. What, what I want to do this morning is challenge you, challenge you to stand and step forward and to respond to the Holy Spirit and what he's called you to do with your life. What is he compelling you to do? I want to invite you now to stand with me, if you would, please. Don't let this moment pass. Whatever God is calling you to do in this moment, take a step of faith. Take a step out of that pew. Take a step forward. Let's pray about it. Let's give that to the Lord at this altar. Whatever it is. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day you've given to us. As Brother Vaughn said earlier, this is a day that you have made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. And we're so thankful to you, God, that we have this day, that we have this moment to respond to what you've called us to do. We are not promised tomorrow. We are not promised one hour from now or one minute from now. But we have this moment to respond to the beckoning, the calling of your Holy Spirit upon our hearts. Help us now to take a step of faith and fulfill that calling. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.